The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Hey there, welcome to Big Universe. I'm Jim Lefter. I'll be your host for today. I'm a spiritual journeyman and media consultant. Joining me is my amazing co-host, spiritual rebel Sarah Bowen. Sarah is the author of Sacred Sendoffs, an animal chaplain's advice for surviving animal loss, making life meaningful, and healing the planet. Hi, Sarah. How are you today? I'm doing good, Jim. I am swimming in really interesting ideas today. How are you doing? I am. I am as well. You know, um, reading. We're, we're going to have Mona Savani on the show, Dr. Mona Savani, and she's got an amazing collection of of facts and information about spirituality coming from a very scientific perspective i you know her her journey from not being open to spirituality to opening up in a real way is uh is awesome so it's got ideas flowing through my head what are some of yours well you know i love this idea and and many people have said it that you know that science and religion or science and spirituality are different languages that are trying to tackle some of the same curiosities that we have and, and I really, you know, I stick to that. We, we've talked about that before on this show, that the the idea that science and religion or science and spirituality are diametrically opposed does not help us because they're really, it, it's they're just not when you start digging far enough. And so, you know, I really like when we're able to say, um, you know, here's wisdom from this discipline and here's wisdom from this discipline. And isn't that interesting that they're coming up with same some of the same concepts? And Mona's book did that in a couple of really interesting ways for me. Yeah, I think, you know, in in life in general, people tend to compartmentalize, you know, where we, you know, we stick in our mindset. We stick in one particular perspective that can be true in a scientific mindset. That can also be true in a spiritual mindset. You know, that we we don't realize that everything is connected, that things can overlap, and there can be experiences that are served by both perspectives, you know, put together. Absolutely. And, and that science can be as dogmatic as religion can be, as secularism can be, you know, that we find we find this um, kind of pressure to conform or this, you know, creating boundaries um you know and 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 power dynamics and all of that kind of stuff too in uh, across the board and any kind of system that we humans beautifully create jim yes, so good with our big brains aren't we got to quote kurt vonnegut <laughs> there right us and our big brains that's right galapagos that's right all right do you have a quote for us today oh yeah i should have used that one but i have a different one okay first you know, a new theory is attacked as absurd. Then it is admitted to be true, but obvious and insignificant. Finally, it is seen to be so important that its adversaries claim that they themselves discovered it. Ooh, I like that is so perfect for today. What What is it? Who is Who's the author of that? That is William James, mm. who wrote a book called The Variety of Religious Experiences um, back in the early uh, 20th century. Uh, but he's he was one of those early guys like Jung and, and some of the other folks who were writing kind of scholarly, but also talking about some of these expanding ideas within spiritual or mystical experiences. And I really like that as a progression of, you know, first we say, OK, you know, that that that's nutters and then like oh okay well maybe but it doesn't really matter that much it's just you know doesn't really happen that often don't worry about it and then we get to some point where it's like oh wait <laughs> uh-oh 
So uh, he, he says it much more eloquently than I do, but that has been my experience um, also personally with things that I have rejected as absurd. And then, you know, a decade later, like, oh, <laughs> right, right. How about you? What'd you come up with today? It is good to have an end to journey towards, but it is the journey that matters in the end. Oh, is that Yoda? Actually, it's Ursula K. Le Guin, <laughs> who is a sci-fi writer. Oh, close enough. See, I oh, see, so I was pre-primed. This is getting into our content today. I must have been pre-primed that you were going science fiction. I just landed in the wrong place. <laughs> Say that one again, Jim. Sure. It is good to have an end to journey towards, but it is the journey that matters in the end. Oh, you know. That's one of the other things in Mona's book, too. She talks a little bit about time and, and how it may not be the linear way that we experience it and some different kind of um, different examples that in scientific studies. So I like that, right? Maybe the journey that I'm on right now isn't stop after stop after stop after stop. Maybe. Maybe it's not. Who knows? Right. Who knows? All right. Are you ready to get into the interview? Let's do it. Mona Sabani is a cognitive neuroscientist who holds a doctorate from the University of Southern California and completed a postdoctoral fellowship at Vanderbilt University with the MacArthur Foundation Law and Neuroscience Project. A former research scientist at the University of Southern California, she was also a scholar with the Sachs Institute for Mental Health Law, Policy, and Ethics, and her work has been featured in the New York Times, Vox, and other media outlets. Mona is the author of the new book, Proof of Spiritual Phenomena, a Neuroscientist's Discovery of the Ineffable Mysteries of the Universe. Wow, that's um, that's a huge endeavor there, Mona. Welcome to Big Universe. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Oh, absolutely. You know, we don't get too many neuroscientists on the show, so I really appreciate You know, we want to see the, the science part of things is is so important as we explore spirituality, and, and sometimes they, people think they're opposed. I, I don't believe they are, but um let me ask you the first question uh you didn't really want to write this book why didn't you want to write this book yeah I mean I didn't want to go on a journey I didn't want to switch my worldview I didn't want to change my understanding of reality and I definitely didn't want to write the book <laughs> but it um it all happened and and by the time I was in the middle of the transformation or towards the end um you know it was really hard <laughs> that you know which I try to convey in the book it was hard for me and I really wished that I I felt very alone and I found a lot of books that had a lot of you know evidence or theories um or summarizing stuff but I, what I really was craving it turns out was like a personal story and so I ended up writing the book that I wish that I had, which was like, cause I found myself asking that I would reach out to people who had written the books with the evidence. And then I would ask them, but can you tell me about your story? <laughs> and like, was this hard for you? Or like, you know, what's your background? How did you come to this? And so I realized that that's what I was craving. And so I, at the, at the end, I, I thought, um, you know, it would be like, helpful maybe for other people because I wish I had had um, a book like this that walked through how difficult it was but that ultimately how it was you know worth it and you interviewed tons of people from all kinds of of experiences from scientists to you know government officials to intuitives and mediums and all that stuff um, that's quite the experience and quite the interview process um, how did you you know, I, I wondered if you could uh, talk about your scientific background a little bit, but that's that's really interesting that you were able yeah. to in envelope all these different people in your research. Yeah, my scientific background is um, so I'm a cognitive neuroscientist, which just means that we we focus on um, we call it higher level <laughs> processing. Um, which is just like human behavior. So not the level of, I'm not doing um, electrophysiology with neurons in the lab. I was doing human subject research um, and my dissertation was on psychopathic traits. And so we have 
people come in to do MRI scans and we um, we would do function and structure of the brain using those scans and then tie it back to some behavior or personality trait. And yeah, so I studied psychopathic traits in grad school. And then um, because of that, I was interested and I was always interested in how science intersects with other fields. Um, and so I, I was interested in how science intersects with the legal system because I was interested in psychopathic traits and, you know, serial killers and um, just people who are in psychology, it's called antisocial personality disorder, um, but people who don't mesh that well with society and how- Whereas To put it mildly, yes. <laughs> yeah, yes, to put it, yeah, at the most basic level is that, but then um, they're, you know, they act in- cruel and unempathetic ways. Um, and I was just really interested in what that means. Like when you're looking at it from a biological perspective, like if there is something wrong with their brain or with the way that they're raised or, you know, nature versus nurture, how does that affect how we think about um, how the legal system deals with them? So then I, that's what I did in my postdoc. Um, and then I, I branched out into later into digital health. So using like wearables and um, smartphones to collect data off of us and see if we could use that to predict health and human behavior and performance. And that's where I was when <laughs> the transformation started. And what what inspired you to, to start taking the path from, you know, with your science background to, you know, the size, the side of spirituality that maybe you hadn't explored. Did you grow up in a, in a uh, religious household? No, no. My, um, my mom is spiritual, but my dad's kind of anti everything for a lot of reasons. <laughs> well, my parents are Persian. They're from Iran. And so, um, you know, with, cause of the, um, Islamic revolution that happened in 1978, they couldn't go back to their country and so they were already in the U.S. for school. Um, and so I think that I think everyone in the country reacted differently. But I think my dad ended up um, just being super anti-religious after that. So he was anti. My mom was spiritual, but they, you know, um, yeah, they, they they let us believe whatever we wanted. Um, they never pushed anything on us or so it was kind of like an open like whatever you want, whatever you want to believe. So not, not spiritual. I, and then through my science training, I became, and through 9-11, um, I became uh, very anti-spirituality and anti-religion. Um, <clears throat> and like really anti, like more than most people. Um, <laughs> everyone was like afraid to talk about that kind of stuff in front of me. <laughs> Interesting. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, and it's fairly common when we have some sort of trauma or we have some sort of place where, you know, we've experienced a lot of hurt mm -hmm. to go there. And, and you speak about, a lot about that in your book about, you know, that kind of context that starts your journey. Right. Yes. Yeah. Like it had to come from, from somewhere. And for me, it was, um, part of it was, oh, I've never talked about this. I hope you don't have any spies for the Islamic Republic listening, but um, <laughs> the, um, for me, it was watching the suppression of women in Iran. And um, like, I went to Iran when I was 13 and experiencing it um, that really, you know, like at a, like you said, a very personal level uh, turned me off to it in ex extremely, <laughs> extremely mm -hmm. turned me off to it. And the opposite, like made me become a champion for, you know, like I became such a feminist when I came back, I was like, well, these rights are everything and we have to fight for them. So, yeah. Coming from a very scientific background and, you know, as you said, sort of dismissing spirituality, um, you come up against, you, you, you discovered or, or came up against what's, what you refer to as kind of a science cult. Um, what is, what is the philosophy of that science cult? And why, why do you refer to it that way? Yeah. Um, it's like an unspoken cult. It's really just what happens in social groups. So it's not specific to science. It's just what happens with humans and, um, <laughs> in any kind of social group. And there's a be uh, underlying belief system, uh, you all try to conform to it and uphold it because in some ways that's your attachment to the group. That's how you've been accepted and you belong to them and it's your community. And so you 
you know, you try, you try to uh, conform your thinking and, and behavior and beliefs so that you'll continue being accepted into the group. And so, yeah, I call it science cult because it's, you know, just like any other social group, it's kind of as culty, mm-hmm. um, but it's, we don't talk about, we, you know, we never talk about unexplained things um, or we didn't uh, in my experience, uh, you know, the, the education's definitely what's conventional, what's in the textbooks. And, you know, like I say, when I started having this kind of existential crisis and started considering spirituality, I realized I didn't know whether, and I have a lot of scientist friends, obviously, I, I didn't know of any of them but were spiritual or religious or believed in anything unexplained. And it was just this really big wake up call. Of, oh my God, we have never talked about this. I have no idea what any of them believe. Um, and I, I, I mean, there's the general sense that like, if you ask any of them, they'll probably say most scientists are atheists or there's like this invisible sense that we all agree unspokenly that, that the things that are woo woo are, that just that and that we don't touch them and we don't believe in them um but then i was but then i realized i was like but i don't actually know because i've never asked them we've never talked about it Hmm. and if i'm considering it you know have they so right yeah so in terms of worldview of the scientific community what what was that worldview that you were coming from yeah it's um so more broadly from just the scientific mainstream scientific western worldview it's that the universe is random dead meaningless and that every every all meaning comes from our human brains um comes from us we we project it onto the external universe and so that's that's pretty much the worldview is that and we use statistics things are random but we we use statistics to, to make sense of the world sure um that's the basic worldview and so your 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 process your your interviews and your experience with this sort of changed you from the what you refer to as the old you to the new you but that wasn't an easy process talk can you talk a little bit about that yeah so i started you know reading and opening to the ideas of, of spirituality and um unexplained phenomena as i call it in the book or anomalous phenomena and what do you mean um, by unexplained phenomena what do you mean by that yeah like there's just weird things like um psychic phenomena or um past lives people remembering you know children remembering past lives and um near-death experiences or like encounters with beings you know light or angels or whatever like there's a lot of um these kinds of things that you know in neuroscience we in my old hat <laughs> if I put my old hat back on we would just say you misperceived it or you something may have happened but you you know you believe in religion so the filters in your brain filtered your perception into an angel or Jesus um but you know that's not what you really there's that's not actually doesn't actually exist in our external world so you must have misperceived it and um so so that's how that's how we we would have viewed it mm-hmm. uh, or i would have viewed it right. um so as i started to open to you know kind of thinking about those um or looking you know reading about them and thinking about and experiencing them myself in some instances um i started to you know kind of think about well you know maybe we don't have the whole story here but then once that started to happen i started to have an identity crisis <laughs> and i started right, to realize right. that um how much uh you know i identified with being um a smart serious arrogant condescending scientist and you know like i felt like i um understood the world and our way of understanding the world was the only way of understanding the world and everyone needs to turn to science otherwise we'll mm-hmm. fall apart <laughs> um and so i started coming up against that and i was like oh if i believe in this stuff or even allow for the possibility then i can't be that person anymore and then who and then who am i and then you also you know it as we mentioned the group thing i start 
I started feeling like, oh, if I, I'm going to lose um, everyone um, <laughs> that I love. Or right, know. which is a real sense of, you know, crisis anytime yeah. you make a transformation. Yeah, it, and it struck me, Mona, when reading your book, too, how I was just so intrigued about how you were having a similar experience as a scientist that many of us have who are religious or are spiritual when we're even within a system and our belief systems start to, our beliefs start to expand, that there's this really, you know, the, the ground has been pulled out from under me. Mm -hmm. I can't talk about this with other people around me because they won't understand. They'll think I'm batty. You know, that I think you actually yeah. use batty in your book too. Yeah. Um, but you know, that, that feeling, I think it's really a, a, just a point I want to double down on that people who are quote unquote scientific or rational or uh, any, any of these other words that are outside of religious and, and spirituality are having uh, that same type of existential crisis. Yeah, we're all human at the end yeah. of the day. We all want to belong, <laughs> I think. And we have these identities and egos that protect us for whatever reason, however they can. And when that's threatened is when you hit crisis. <laughs> so, so how did you respond to that? How did how did you work with this ah within your life? Uncomfortably. Um, <laughs> for a long time, it, it just kept coming up. And well, what happened was I would I would read a lot and I, I, at some point there was just so much evidence. Like I was reading about psychic phenomena and I, there was scientific studies published and there was so much evidence. And I thought, okay, it's a scientist, like you have to follow the evidence. And, but then if I follow the evidence, I'm coming up against impossible things, which is what, how our scientific paradigm would refer to these things. And you can't believe in impossible things. And then I'd be like, but then you have to follow the evidence. And so it was like this circle. And um, and then every morning I would wake up and think, like I would be convinced, I would go to bed convinced that it's possible these things happen. Then I would wake up and then um, old me would like come back and be like, <laughs> you've been fooled. You, you're, you're being stupid. You fell for it, um, you, you know, whatever. And so all these thoughts. And then over time I started, hearing those as not me right I started hearing those thoughts and I was like what like this person is very mean I've met that mean person in my head too <laughs> yeah the word karma and, comes to mind <laughs> like and I started hearing it and um I was just suffering because I was like if I could just accept if I could just accept some of these things, um, it was just, it was the friction. It was the not being able to accept it comfortably and easily that was causing all the suffering. It yeah. was the like, I, I can't, I can't let go of this identity. I can't not be this person. Um, and, and I can't believe in these things. And um, it was causing so much turmoil. But finally, um, you know, I mean, that went on for a, a while and it was uncomfortable. And then finally somebody, um, point like it was this um his name is Vincent Jenna he's a he used to be a therapist or um a psych psychotherapist and then he he had like a spiritual awakening and his right we've had Vincent on several oh, yeah. okay, times yeah. yeah 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 so I was speaking with him we were we were talking um a friend connected us and and I told him I was like look I want to know what my problem is I don't have time like I'm in psychotherapy but like I just can you just tell me what my problem is <laughs> so <laughs> just an I easy can, answer just real quick yeah I was like I just want to know what it is so I can work on it or whatever and and then he told me um he's like you know it's that and he he's the one who explained all this to me he's like well you know he's like at some point when you were a child you probably felt like you weren't smart enough and so being smart became the way that you um, protected yourself or, or felt made you feel valuable and so he's like that's why it's hard for you to let that for he's like for some reason you think that spirituality or these th these things because the paradigm says that they're impossible and stupid so you can't accept those because then it threatens you being smart which is like a core part and I was just like that's not true and then but then I went for months and months and thought about it and I was like oh my god oh, he's probably darn it right it is. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And so I had to go meditate on it. And then it was like, a, you know, it was a huge breakthrough and I finally accepted it. And I was like, oh my God. And he said something else he said, which really at the time, oh, I just remember he said this. And I, <laughs> I remember how much it 
it didn't resonate with me, which is how I, how much I was still old me. He said, you have more to offer the world than your intellect. Like mm. you, you can offer your heart. And I just remember being like, what? But <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was like, I don't even know what that means. And then that's what I had to go meditate on for months. And then I finally understood later. I was like, he's right. <laughs> okay. But at the time I could not get, I was so like, no, like your intellect, like we, you know, I, I valued smartness so much that I couldn't even see the other things. Hmm. Your book contains a lot of these different points of what you talk about synchronicities or coincidences or things that, that you, um, you know, these, these different things that happen to kind of propel you onto the journey. And there were two big ones that you mentioned that really started uh, your you're looking at everything that was changing you. One was the death of an associate mm -hmm. and the other was a dark night of the soul. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I know so many people have had dark nights of the soul. What was yours like? Yeah. Um, so I was, um, I was, you know, it's funny doing these interviews is like psychotherapy. <laughs> yes, I hope you're on the couch right now, you know, staring up and we're, we're taking notes. So just so yeah. you know. So I, um, I feel like I had an insight like, like yesterday and during one of these interviews, um, but I felt, so after I finished grad school, which grad school is very purpose-driven, you're like, your biggest purpose in life is to get that PhD. And then once that's done um, and you start working, it's like, I started, I felt um, it was kind of like a cliff. Like I'd been pushed off a cliff and I was kind of like, oh, like now what? And then going to work every day was not doing it for me. Like I wasn't fulfilled. And so I was already kind of like waking up every day, like, what is the point of all of this? Um, but then, and then in 2016, so my, so I'm Persian, as I mentioned in our culture, we have um, a tradition of divination. It's my, my family does it. My grandmother used to do it. My mom does it. Yeah. I uh, wanted, I wanted to talk about that because you, you embarked on a, on a strictly scientific path, but your mom did these, these readings. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, and it's related. I'll tell yeah. you. So, yeah. So they, these uh, it's like a thicker kind of coffee. It's not like American coffee where, but you have the grounds in the cup. So when you drink the coffee, the grounds stay in the cup and at the bottom, and then you can flip the cup and it dries and then pictures emerge. And if you have an intuitive reader, they can intuit things about your past, present and future. And so my grandmother um, was apparently a, like a, a legendary reader and my mom learned from her. And this was always going on in the background of our, you know, how family parties in our home. And I never paid attention to any of it but uh my mom started reading for me when i was in grad school uh just casually you know um bonding thing and then she, i noticed she was <laughs> more right than she was wrong and she would predict things and i so i started taking notes but in 2016 there were there were two of not in 20 it started in 2016 and there were two big emotional events that kind of made me think about the coffee because for a while I lived in cognitive dissonance I was like I don't know how this works but it works I can't explain it with science I'm just going to keep them separate um but yeah in 2016 she started seeing in the cup she was like I think you're going to get some really bad news and she never said things like that um and she got like behaviorally she was being weird like when she was telling me so I was like what is it and for five to six weeks she she kept seeing it and the more times you see something the more likely it is to come true and so um, she just kept saying, I just feel like I need to warn you. Like you're, I just, I don't want to say what it is, but I think you might get some bad news. And then um, six weeks later, we found out one of my professors at USC was, was killed by one of the students in the program. And um, wow. I had, he had helped me with one of my um, dissertation experiments. And I mean, he was one of the most um, beloved professors in the program, actually. So it was one of those really, weird things where you're like some other faculty members if I had heard I wouldn't be surprised but like this one was like right. a sweetheart and so that was really upsetting on, on its own but then I was I think because it was a life death thing mm -hmm. it really upset me that mm -hmm. like sure. the, um information was available beforehand and I couldn't really 
get over that. <laughs> like I was like, what does sure. that mean? Well, oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and I started thinking about fate and destiny, but I didn't do anything cause I was busy and, um, which just wasn't ready to look into it. And then a few years later, my mom saw this relationship coming and looked like it was going to be positive. And it was positive. I mean, but then we broke up. So then I was like, um, you know, I didn't think that part of it was positive. So I was, you know, kind of asking my mom, like, well, why, why did you say it was positive? Like, I'm sad. And um, of course, in the long, long term, it was, it was positive, but that I was already in a bad place, <laughs> like, sure. already feeling like, um, you know, just purposeless. And I, and, you know, looking back on the psychology, like, I think I had placed all my like, oh, good, like this relationship will make me happy. Um, and it'll, it'll save me. And so I think of it now as like, um, like I thought of that as my life raft. So once that popped, um, I was just like lost at sea. And so for the first time ever, I felt despair and I wasn't optimistic about the future and I was just depressed really and sad. And I'd never felt that way ever before. So then I was sad about that, <laughs> that I was like, what is this? state that I'm in and I was like I'm never going to get out of it you know because you can't see outside of it sure. and so it was just dark and um and part of you know also in hindsight part of that is because of was because of my worldview that the universe is is random and and meaningless and so you know I I remember thinking I just kept thinking why 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 to everything like why why are we here why is this happening or why <laughs> and like the answer from my worldview was it just is and that just wasn't working for me mm -hmm. <laughs> like it yeah, just wasn't yeah. it wasn't comforting it was making it worse actually I was just fell into more despair um and so so that that was I was in that for a while um and but then I couldn't stop thinking about the coffee too, because I'm like, well, if it is random and meaningless, um, how can, you know, how could we, I don't know. I just didn't know how it all tied together. Sure. Um, and then that's when I started um, with some of my friends, we started going to get intuitive readings because I wanted to understand better the nature of this phenomena. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. So do you have a, uh, you know, going to intuitive readings and, and and uh doing this do you have a different sense about what what's your thought on fate and destiny and all that at, at this point i mean i know you're still in process as we all are yeah. um you know do, do you have thoughts about that uh, uh listen my life's journey is to be finally yes. answer to this question yes yes <laughs> i don't know but i mean from everything i've 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 read it's confusing because this is what I kept asking the intuitives to just out of curiosity. Um, but then later I found it in a lot of things I read too. And they say that there's some things that are predetermined and then, but there's also free will and that you quote unquote, uh, co-create <laughs> with the universe. And I don't, you know, I don't, so I don't know, mm -hmm. but who, um, who of us really does. I mean, ultimately, yeah. I don't know, but it does feel like, um, you know, I, I can say since I've gotten intuitive readings for years now out of this like kind of experiment for myself and sometimes, I mean, a lot of them see the same things and they will be like big things um, that happen far in the future. And so like at the time when I started this project, they would say things that didn't resonate and I would be like, oh, like they're off. And then, but they would say similar things to each other. And then years later, you know, now I'm like on this totally different path. And like a lot of what they said was, was true. And so then that makes me think like how interesting, like years in advance, like they saw things. And sometimes I just, I wonder if, um, you know, I don't know, maybe some what, things are predetermined. What similarities um, did you find with the intuitive readers and uh, mediums and that sort of thing? Were there things that they said in common about worldview and all that sort of thing? Yeah. So they, and that was, that's another thing that, that got my attention was that they, when we were going to the um, readers, they would say things about 
like, oh, this person's in your soul group. This is a karmic event. This is from a past life. And I didn't understand what they were talking about because I wasn't familiar with any of those things. So I would just write them down and then brush it off like, uh, okay, uh, you believe that. I didn't even know what that means um, and ignore it. You know, just didn't even, it didn't register. And humans are like that. If you, you know, presented with something you don't have a framework for, it kind of bounces off your your brain. So that's what happened with that. Um, but I just noticed that they all said the same, they all subscribe subscribed to that uh, spiritual framework. And it was surprising to me because I, I was really unfamiliar. So mm -hmm. I was like, isn't reincarnation, you know, part of Hinduism? And like, this is really strange that they're talking about. Is that what all psychics believe? And, you know, I was like, where do they learn it? Do they all go to psychic school? And like, they all learn it together. So then that's why I decided to start interviewing them. Cause I was just kind of curious to be like, where did you learn this framework? And like, how did you decide to become psychic? You know, or I was just very curious about them as people. <laughs> it was very sure. fascinating. When you talk about reincarnation, you said Dr. Brian Weiss's book, many lives, many masters really affected you do you believe in reincarnation now how did it affect you what what are your thoughts on that now i think i do i think it i think there's it's funny i try not to say i believe anything anymore right <laughs> I, I i would say that um i'd say there's some compelling evidence or evidence that makes it a possibility yeah for sure yeah, yeah. So that's one of the things that strikes me about your book, Mona, is there's really kind of three things going on. There's this personal journey that you're having of this cognitive dissonance and, oh, here's all this new information. What do I do with it? And then there's your desire to go out and speak with people across different disciplines and say, okay, wait, what do you think about this? And, and what is your experience? And then there's also a really beautiful nerdy side to you we like nerdy we do we do we that's a compliment Let, let's say a um a more just no i'm not going to say more discipline there's another side of you that is going into the scientific literature is looking at the papers is looking at meta-analysis and and different types of things to say all right in the experiments that have been done or the things that have been studied not just kind of one-offs some of the one-offs and the outliers and also some of the reviews to start to kind of get an idea of these things that haven't really been talked about or have been pushed to the side or are talked behind closed doors or don't tell anyone I think this, you know, really kind of um, almost doing some archaeology for us of bringing personal views and also views from within the science cult or from within right. the, you know, people who are, who are scientists. Can you talk a little bit, you know, as we as we move into looking at some of those, because I think they're really, really fascinating. Um, and I, th there's one I specifically want to ask you about, but, you know, it's fascinating some of the things that you unearth. Can you talk a little bit about about that process? Yeah, for sure. And what kicked it off was the Many Lives, Many Masters book by Brian Weiss and um, for me, it was hard to, we've talked about, it's hard for me to just believe anything, <laughs> like just believe. And I needed something to, but preferably scientific evidence to, um, you know, have ground to stand on to say that this is an interesting phenomena. And um, what happened with the Brian Weiss uh, book is the reason it caught my attention is because it was a psychiatrist who was well-trained, went to Yale and Columbia. I was like chair of psychiatry. And he was, I think he was an atheist, um, maybe Jewish background, but didn't believe in anything paranormal. And he stumbles across past lives in his practice, trying to treat a patient. Um, and I found that to be true for other uh, psychiatrists and psychotherapists and like a, a number of them have stumbled across it in their practice and um I thought that was interesting <laughs> um especially since there were enough there were thousands of cases and they all described very similar um they they gave similar descriptions of the spiritual framework like if you put someone in this kind of hypnotic regressed state or ultra relaxed state and ask you know and you're doing a regression with them um, and you ask them to describe a spiritual framework, 
in one of these past five sessions, like they'll say, oh, we come to earth in soul groups and there's karma and reincarnation. And I just thought that was, I still think it's very strange <laughs> and very interesting because, um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to usually, because we believe those are belief systems that come, that we learn through our culture. That's the conventional belief. Um, but a lot of these were Westerners who were like, like Catholic or Christian or, you know, they not, they didn't come from um, cultures that would suggest they would subscribe to Eastern philosophies at all, or be, even be familiar with them. And so I thought that was really weird, frankly, <laughs> like kind of curious. And that's really interesting. And at first, you know, I was just very biological, folk. it was focused biologically. I was like, oh, what could be the mechanism? Is this something that got coded in our genes that, um, comes out uh but then you know eventually I was like maybe spiritual <laughs> I was like I don't know maybe maybe there's uh, something more to it yeah yeah I was like maybe like at some point when I finally let go a little I was like I don't know maybe um and the reason for that was because I started to think about when I did ask the intuitives where they learned the framework or the spiritual framework they were like oh my spirit guide taught me and I just kind of stared at them like, what? <laughs> but a lot of them said that. And I was like, okay, I don't know. You know, I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea. But they claimed they didn't not, you know, most of them didn't go to school to even learn how to become an intuitive. It's just something that happens to them. Um, so I was like, so they, so they say they got it from somewhere. And, and then also now if you, you know, there's this literature passive progression of like, they're just spontaneously um suggest if you ask them that's the story they tell you and i and i just started to think that's really interesting and curious and that's when i started to read more into that the um the philosophy because i thought this is strange so that it started there um and then in in, the, in that when i was reading about past life regression of course those authors cited you know other things about reincarnation cases from children and near death experience so i went to go go read that literature too and then um the other thing for me was you know, I'm sitting there with these intuitives and I'm thinking, dude, some of the things they could see like from your past, you know, some obscure trauma from my childhood and they would get like seven, 10 variables correct. And I'm like, there's just no way you could guess this. <laughs> like, it's not vague at all. You right, know? right. Um, and I'm like, so there, so that's correct. So, and I know, I mean, through my, my own family, I know, I know that some people, are very intuitive for however it comes they just are and so then I thought so it doesn't necessarily mean that the spiritual framework they're they're describing is true but it does it is a question it's mm -hmm. a question it's like well if that if this information they're giving is accurate is is the other one is the other story accurate and that was what that was kind of the question in my mind um and so then I went to make sure <laughs> psychic phenomena was real and that I wasn't making it up in my head and that's when I found there was like an entire <laughs> scientific literature like what and I put in the book there there was so much so many labs across the world had done so many thousands of experiments that there had been reviews and meta-analyses which in science is what you do when you pull all the studies together to look and be like is there a true effect how big is the effect is it um you know not a true phenomenon or is it and so I mean, there was like a recent one in, from 2018 in a peer-reviewed scientific journal that said that psychic phenomena is basically, if you hold it to the standards of normal science, that there's an effect there. And so, and like, I needed that, you know, I needed mm -hmm. a little bit of science at least to stand on. And once I had that, um, then I could open my mind a little, <laughs> be a little more open-minded to, well, because I do know the limitations of science and there are a lot. Like doing lab-based work is very limited, very limiting. And I, I still think it's like one of the things on my mind right now a lot is how limiting it is and, and how our society um, sticks to, though, this gold standard of double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled clinical trials, when a lot of times those trials are so, unna they're unnaturalistic. It's not a natural setting. And humans don't, you know, when you know you're being observed, you've immediately changed the variable. So I think it's kind of, like, I think about that a lot with the limitations of science and how I think we're erroneously focusing so much on one type of lab study. 
Well, you know, your your journey really resonates with me because I'm I'm somewhat of a skeptic too sometimes when it comes to spirituality. You know, I can be a skeptic and uh you know, I um you know, when when we talked with mediums and intuitives, I'm always kind of guessing, you know, is this is this real or not? I I don't know. But I have had experiences too where you know, things you just don't expect. For instance, years ago, uh, my wife and I were trying to, uh, you know, have a, have a child. And um, one of the intuitives said to me, well, two things the intuitive really uh, fascinated with, uh, I was fascinated with. One, she said I was going to get an operation in a part of my uh, neck that uh, I needed that I turned out I needed to have. And I did go ahead with the operation. Um, the other was, she said, you know, when we were talking about, you know, will will we be able to have kids? She said, there's this one little boy that's hanging out with you that that's going to be in your life. And, and turned out we had a son, you know, and it was it's fascinating to me. But you did a lot of research and that that's really, really interesting. Now, you, you talk in the book about, um, you know, government programs and, and sci research. And I wondered if you could open up a little bit about you know what you experienced in the literature in terms of the kinds of experiments yeah yeah so i um i guess i can't remember how i was reading this but it was kind of before i i think it was before well i don't know whatever anyway i was reading um annie jacobson's book um phenomena and it's mm -hmm. about the secret u.s um programs looking at psychic phenomena or unexplained phenomena and in the 70s i think it started um the it started with nasa funding this program where they had three physicists running it and they had really highly gifted intuitives or psychics um come in and they wanted to understand how it works and so they for first it was funded by nasa then it got funded by the cia and uh, army intelligence and it just went for 25 years they funded this thing from all the different branches is to, to understand how it works and they did um all different kinds of experiments i don't want to only focus on theirs because actually since then there's been better ones but so one example um this is how they look at um psychic phenomena in a lab they'll have uh so if, let's say you're just trying to assess it in one person you can have a computer um you know, Rand, and we do this in neuroscience and psychology experiments where you have a computer present stimuli is what we say, like present images to you um, in random order, testing various things. And so for the precognition experiments, um, they're testing whether you can correctly guess what the next target will be um, when it's random. So, and then they'll, let's say, use four targets and the chance of you um, you, it should be 25% since there's four, you should guess the right one by chance, just 25% of the time. But when they do the experiment, they found that um, some people were way above chance in choosing the target correctly before mm. it was shown. Mm -hmm. And they also found that if you paired the targets with um, an emotional picture is how we describe it, um, which is like, it could be an erotic picture or a violent picture, but it's basically something that causes you to like get um, physiologically um, activated um, if you paired it even if it was subliminally which means you don't you don't like if I I show it to you so quickly that if I ask you if you saw it you you don't you say no um, but if they paired emotional pictures with that then the chance of them guessing correctly um, randomly but before it's shown increased exponentially hmm. and then they also did experiments where and that was done, that one was, well, they've been done everywhere, but that one was done at Cornell by this like established um, psychologist. Um, another one is they want to see between people, this type of experiment. So they'll separate two people, put them in electromagnetically shielded um, rooms, because that's a whole thing in the field is like, is it an electromagnetic signal or not? Um, put them into separate rooms. And then the experiment, you're one person's supposed to try to send thoughts to the other person and they'll give them a selection of targets to choose from like a, you know, like a lamp or a, a mountain scene or something. Um, and again, like four pictures, let's say they should correctly randomly choose it at 25% chance. And then they'll indicate like, okay, now send the picture um, and then stop sending the thought send it now so and then they do this over time and they found that yes again some people 
um, could above chance, like the person receiving the thoughts, they would then ask them which thought is the person sending you and above chance that level they would choose the correct image um and then it also affects not just thoughts but i think they could also affect their physiology so it could also cause them so we can measure sweat in the lab and you can um like when you're physically um, activated you'll sweat more and so they they did that they were like send thoughts to like <laughs> I don't know, activate them. Um, and they found that actually they're, they're sweating, their skin conductance would go up like above chance on those trials when the other person was sending them those kinds of thoughts. So so th that's the type of experiments that they would do um, that have been done and the hundreds of them and so many different labs across countries, lots of trials, thousands of um, participants, just like, and the, you know, effect sizes are small, which, and I talk about this in the book, just for scientists, like, which means the, well, duh, like, it's not a big thing. Like it's this very subtle effect. And, um, but the effect sizes are comparable to other things that we study in psychology and neuroscience. They're, you know, very similar, um, and in fact, I'm, there's more evidence, like I say in the book, more evidence for for psychic phenomena than there is for a lot of the other things that we study that mm. just haven't been as well studied. So, uh, yeah, if you use the normal standard science um, standards, it it should pass it. Now, like I say, you can get fancy with statistics and you can always criticize a scientific experiment because nobody's perfect. No experiment's perfect. Um, but if you do that, um you have to throw out a lot of our other science too, because it wouldn't stand the test, the statistical tests either. That's fascinating. It is. And there's some really kind of interesting implications from a religious or spiritual standpoint when we talk about that in distance prayer mm -hmm. or different ways of practices where we might be sending thoughts to someone or sending words or, you know, are, are we actually affecting someone? Are we not? So I, I, I found that part of the book fascinating. Um, but I do want to get to one thing because I know we're going to run out of time and make sure that we that we talk about we've been so far talking about what happens kind of within the framework of within a person or from a person to another person. And yet your book uh, starts to talk about some other uh, kind of concepts, which we might talk about uh, a higher power or the force or God and that kind of intersection with quantum physics with some of the other things that are going on that say perhaps it's not uh, it's not just something that's happening in a human or between a human or just in our brain and we start to get into all sorts of messy things like the hard problem of consciousness here uh, that gets me very excited but could could you break it down for people because I think you do so in the book in, in a pretty um, accessible way what are people talking about when we're talking about the science of a large consciousness or awareness or a field. Could, could you go there for us for a minute? Yeah. So um, in conventional neuroscience, we believe the assumption is that the mind is tied to the brain. It comes, arises from the brain. If there's no brain, there's no mind. And they're definitely highly correlated because if you knock out a piece of the brain, um, then you lose mind functions for sure. Um, but there's a lot of uh, evidence, a lot of things, even in traditional neuroscience that we can't explain, like um, people who can suddenly speak, um, like if they have a, some sort of head injury, sometimes they can spontaneously speak a language they've never learned. They can um, play, you know, a musical instrument at a master level, which they've never learned. Um, so there's, and there's cases of people who have like, you know, this much of a brain, like one centimeter um, of brain tissue for whatever reason. For I've met disorder. people like that. <laughs> yeah. No, sorry. No, they, that was, oh, stop, that was not Jim. quite what I meant. That's not what you meant there. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Yeah. Meaning that they function at a normal level. Like you would never know there's anything wrong, right. but there's like only a little bit of brain tissue, which if we have all these theories about the different parts of the brain do this and they work together and without this part, you can't have this, but there's right. cases where that is not true. And so in science, if there are exceptional cases, then you do not have the full model. Like you can't, if you can't account for the anomalous cases, explain the normal cases but if you ignore them 
it's easy to ignore them, but then you don't have a full model. And so we already don't, we already know we don't have a full model just in conventional neuroscience or stuff we can't explain. So, um, but it, when you look at, um, when you go into like the history of psychology and, um, look more carefully at some of these mind, these altered states of consciousness, uh, that's where like breath work or meditation or hypnotic regression or psychedelics, um, you find that that's where I now think of it. These are the states where the paranormal, the transpersonal and personal healing, they all converge. And so in these states, uh, you have people, you know, like getting information um, about other people that they shouldn't know about the future, about the past. Um, they might have, uh, you know, they might see spiritual beings or what whatnot. Um, but there's all kinds of weird things basically that happen and again conventional neuroscience would just say nah, those are just like perceptions it's just your brain uh playing tricks on you but the thing is if it provides you information that you can verify that turns out to be true that there's no way that you could know um that's where it gets sticky and that's where it's uh not something you should throw away because we we currently brush it off as coincidence but that doesn't explain anything. And there's so many of these cases that it doesn't really make sense to do that in my opinion and in the opinion of a lot of other people. So um, so there's theories that perhaps the mind is not uh, totally um, constrained to the brain that possibly, so like earlier today, I, I did um, an interview with Bernard uh, Beitman, who's a psychiatrist who wrote a book on coincidences. And he, he talked, we were talking about how, you know, like, probably our minds expand past like and they interact with our environments and with each other in some way and then some people take the theory further to say that we there's all one broader quote-unquote consciousness that connects us all and consciousness is a very very difficult thing to um explain and talk about and in normal neuroscience we would just say it's um how am I aware that I'm aware? Like if I take a breath and I'm aware I'm sitting here, I'm conscious and that's consciousness. Um, and we have no explanation for how that occurs in conventional neuroscience. It's the hard problem. It's the hardest problem we have. We can't, we don't have a, cause we don't know how subjective experience arises from the neurons. We know how they talk to each other, but we don't know how we, we are aware and how we feel. And so um, but when you turn to spirituality, you know, this term consciousness is used much more broadly and like, uh, some of the physicists, uh, quantum physicists from back in the day would say like consciousness is fundamental actually to the universe, not matter. Consciousness is fundamental because, because we, it's our limiting factor. We can't get outside of consciousness. If you get outside consciousness, you don't exist anymore. And so it has to start and stop there. I hope this isn't getting too meta, but, um, and so, so a lot of these theories say that we, you know, in conventional science, we say matter is the foundation of the universe and anything, um, you know, everything physical, if, it, if it's not physical, we can't measure it. It doesn't matter. Um, and these other theories say, no, what if the structure of the universe is made of consciousness, which of course we can't give a chemical composition for, but, we arise out of that consciousness into individual pieces of consciousness um, somehow. And some people say that, and I put this one model in the book. There's a lot of different models though. Um, one model in the book that was recently published in a journal, a scientific journal that says, talks about how the brain could possibly be a receiver for connecting to something like the field, which we like, could be something like the force and start yeah star wars the force yeah, yes something like that that like there's something that connects us all that is above us in another plane but that we can access if we get into the right frequency so no one knows <laughs> and there's a lot of different models um so it's all, it's all still being worked out it's a that's the beautiful place for me where science and spirituality or and religion are trying to solve the same question yeah, at, with different language and different words. And when we're trying to talk about something that is mysterious that we don't quite understand, and we have this beautiful poetic um, sacred text that, you know, posit and, and muse about this. And now we have science saying, well, 
you know, actually, if you if you take this viewpoint and, and so to see both of them being able to come up with different languages for for the same thing that we're talking about, the same question, that yeah. same kind of eternal existential question that we have about why are we here and is there meeting and, and all of that. Um, I think that's the point where science and spirituality start not being these opposites that are in conflict with each other, mm -hmm. but kind of a beautiful place. So I, I appreciated that out of your book, Mona. And I know that we did we did dive real deep there for a minute, folks. Um, but if you read Mona's book across, she lays it out quite excessively uh, within the chapters, building a little on a little on a little, uh, if anyone's interested in, in that that piece of this perhaps puzzle. So I'm going to go to that place again and say, do you believe in a conscious universe? Yeah. Ooh, I'm putting everybody on the spot. <laughs> uh, yeah, like I, I, again, I try not to say I believe anymore because I started realizing how limiting um, or how I think of us all as walking data sets. And it's like, we only know what we know. Oh, I and love that. <laughs> That's true. I'm a That's walking true. data set, Jim. <laughs> So, I'm gonna get cold. a t-shirt. I'm getting a t-shirt on that one, Mona. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I love that. We're walking data sets. Yeah, and we're all and we all have we're all different data from each other. And it's like I've read this book, you haven't read that book or whatever. So so yeah, I mean at any given time I can tell you um I be, not I believe, but uh what I've read, the evidence, the whatever, the theories, the thing, I it does seem to me possible <laughs> that and this is um, not meta just metaphysical or esoteric. There's like cosmologies and physicists putting forth theories like this, that we live in a participatory universe, that we live in a conscious, intelligent universe, um, whatever that means. That could mean various, various things, but I do think it's a possibility. Um, you know, I don't, I don't see why not. <laughs> do you do any practices that uh, you didn't do before all this, um, like meditation and that sort of thing? Yeah, I always, um, not always, I had been meditating for years before this, but yes, I do that. I continue to work on my meditation practice. Um, yeah, I do more, I do more rituals now, or like I'm much more aware of the cycles of the year and the month and things like that. And just kind of uh, the power in, in ritual and I aligned myself, I think, in those ways where I think I would have felt that was silly before, but mm -hmm. I think that there's enough, I've read a lot of <laughs> things that make me feel like um, that there's power in that, even if it's, and I don't even like to make the distinction anymore between placebo or self-fulfilling profit or whatever. It doesn't really matter to me. It just matters that there's power in it. And I think there is. So yeah, I do, I do rituals and um, make wishes. I don't like for some reason, I still don't like the word prayer, um, but yeah, wishes to the universe. And I, I also feel more, just more connected to it. And like, I like that idea of, I feel like I'm in conversation with the universe at all times. So I, I stay, try to stay aligned and um, attuned to that much more than I did in the past. Yeah. So what's next on your journey? What are you, what are you looking into now? Are you continuing on this path? I'm really interested in um, like the altered states of consciousness and how they bring all these things together. Um, so I've been, I, and I wrote about some of that in my book, but I, I write a newsletter. Um, it started off about psychedelics, but it's moving into <laughs> other altered states and other things. Um, so I'm really interested in that. And I'm also um, like, so in the book too, I invite, like, I really think that scientists or anyone should engage the mystical and the spiritual or kind of lean in and with curiosity because I do think there's a lot to learn there and I think it can really inform us about the human experience like as we work on these theories of consciousness or human behavior I think they can help us a lot so um yeah one thing I'm doing is going to we have this huge annual neuroscience conference it's like 30,000 people all the neuroscientists in the world converge and a collaborator and I made this satellite event for science and spirituality and kind of like advertised it. Like, have you ever had an experience you haven't been able to explain with science? And so we're trying to um, 
find more people like us and we're 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 starting to think about doing like a one day or a few days retreat next year uh where they can scientists or anyone else can come like kind of engage the mystical and like run through the scientific studies that we talked about um in an easy to understand way maybe get a reading maybe get in touch with their you know do a meditation or or kind of just get in touch with that side of them so that it's not so scary <laughs> well that's that's fascinating. That's that's wonderful. Um, so is there one final thing or one piece of advice um, you'd like to give our listeners as we close up here today? Yeah, well, my personal mantra now is stay radically curious, because I feel like if I hadn't been curious, I would have been back where I was miserable and suffering. Um, so yeah, I just try to stay open and curious and really carry that with me. And like I said, I encourage people to like, I think our, I think Western culture can be very um, dismissive of, you know, these alternative, I don't like using the word alternative either, but these more mystical and spiritual practices. But I think that they're very healing. And I think that they're very meaningful. And I there's a lot of research evidence that says that it's very healthy for humans. And so I really encourage people to stop um, brushing off or dismissing experiences or moments like that you sense a coincidence and you get goosebumps. Don't dismiss it as, oh, that's just, you know, my coincidence detector brain or whatever. Just, just lean into it and <laughs> just enjoy it. Awesome. Well, this has been fascinating, Mona. And thank you so much for joining us on Big Universe. Thank you so much for having me. Mona Savani is the author of the new book, Proof of Spiritual Phenomena, a neuroscientist's discovery of the ineffable mysteries of the universe. Is there a website or something that people can uh, look at or, re or reach you yeah, at? Yeah, I have a personal website. It's monasabaniphd.com. So yeah, links to the book are there and my and, newsletter. And Sabani is S-O-B-H-A-N-I. Yes. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining us. For more great information about Sarah Bowen and to order her new book, Sacred Send-Offs, an animal chaplain's advice for surviving animal loss, making life meaningful, and healing the planet, go to sacredsendoffs.com. You can find out more about me on my website called youthrivehere.com. Thanks, everybody. I'm Jim Lefter with Sarah Bowen, and we'll talk with you next time on Big Universe. Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Farber, and I'm an author, teacher, psychotherapist, and shamanic practitioner. On my podcast, Healing for Your Soul, I welcome some amazing guests and introduce you to some healing techniques like earth magic, working with nature and animals, and really getting to the heart of what is keeping you stuck. I want to help you deepen your spirituality and let go of blocks that are holding you back. Let me help you in this journey called life. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network, Subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode.